It's Saturday, May the 21st, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, fighting intensifies in Donbass, quote, hell, and America approves $40 billion for Ukraine. First, the week in brief. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, described conditions in the east of the country as, quote, hell, as an intensifying Russian bombardment has left the Donbass region, quote, completely destroyed. Ukraine has reported intense fighting around Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, two cities in the region. Russia is using artillery, rocket launchers and aircraft. Many civilian targets have been hit. Mr. Zelensky described a missile strike on a cultural centre in the Kharkiv region, in which seven people, including an 11-year-old child, were injured, as, quote, absolute evil, absolute stupidity. The S&P 500 index ventured into bear market territory on Friday, for the first time since March 2020. Having taken a plunge amid fresh concerns about high inflation and slowing growth, it then closed just above the bear market threshold. With seven straight weeks of declines, the index has now seen its most prolonged fall since 2001. The Nasdaq Composite Index has lost more than 30% this year. A federal judge blocked plans by the Biden administration to lift Title 42, a measure allowing border police to expel asylum seekers and other migrants on the grounds of public health. The policy, put in place by then-President Donald Trump in 2020, was set to expire on May 23rd. America's Department of Justice said it would appeal the ruling. Gerhard Schröder, a former Chancellor of Germany, finally stepped down from the board of Rosneft, a Russian energy company. Mr Schröder had come under increasing pressure from EU officials to cut his ties with Russia. On Thursday, Germany stripped him of some official perks, including a publicly funded office. In recent days, other foreign executives at Rosneft have reportedly quit. Mr Schroeder may still join the supervisory board of Gazprom, another Russian energy giant, which is scheduled to happen in June. Emmanuel Macron, France's newly re-elected president, announced a new cabinet consisting largely of members of his previous one. Bruno Le Maire kept his job as finance minister, while Catherine Colonna, who leaves her post as ambassador to London, became foreign minister. More boldly, Pap Ndiaye, a historian and public intellectual who writes about race, was put in charge of education, and Olivier Dussopt, a former member of the Socialist Party, was given the task of enacting the president's controversial pension reform. On May 16th, Mr Macron appointed the country's first female prime minister in 30 years. Virginia Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court justice, urged lawmakers in Arizona to dismiss President Joe Biden's win and appoint, quote, a clean state of electors, according to the Washington Post. It's said that in November 2020, Mrs Thomas told two lawmakers via email they had, quote, power to fight back against fraud. Earlier this year, the paper published texts by Mrs Thomas telling Donald Trump's chief of staff to overturn the election. 
Retail sales in Britain unexpectedly rose 1.4% in April, despite consumer confidence falling to its lowest level since the 1970s. The retail sales, driven by a boost in supermarket alcohol spending, may reflect a shift in consumer behaviour, with shoppers choosing to drink at home rather than pubs. Meanwhile, German producer prices in April were 33.5% higher than a year earlier, suggesting that German consumers will continue to face high inflation too. And phrase of the week. Jogo de Buzius. The throwing of shells for the telling of fortunes. This Afro-Brazilian tradition thrives in a changing country, but it's becoming more secular and digital. And now, here's today's agenda. Australians are poised to abandon their major parties. Voters down under face an uninspiring choice in their federal election on Saturday. The Australian government, a conservative coalition made up of the Liberal Party and smaller National Party, has been out of favour for months. Its Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has been accused of lying and bullying by his own colleagues. Officials in his government have been buffeted by allegations of sexual and political misconduct. If polls are right, voters want to change. Labour, the opposition party, is forecast to do five percentage points better than last time. Yet Labour's path to victory is not assured. Its leader, Anthony Albanese, is even less popular than Mr Morrison, and his party's lead has been narrowing. Indeed, support for both sides is at historic lows. Up to one-third of Australians may desert them in favour of minor parties and independents. These include climate-focused candidates, promising sharper emissions cuts and more, quote, integrity in politics, running in constituencies long held by the Liberal Party. A couple of them could even turf out Conservative MPs. A hung parliament may beckon, and independence could hold the balance of power. The UN Human Rights Chief is finally visiting Xinjiang. Four years have passed since Michelle Bachelet, the UN's Human Rights Chief, first requested access to Xinjiang, the northwestern region in China, where some one million Uyghurs and other minorities were forced through state-run, quote, re-education camps from 2017 to 2019. Next week, Miss Bachelet is finally going. Her visit may do more harm than good. Chinese authorities say the trip is a, quote, friendly visit. But they have reportedly pressured Miss Bachelet's office into withholding a report on violations in Xinjiang that was ready for publication last year. Meanwhile, China has dismantled many of its camps, moved detainees to prisons or factories, and created a facade of normalcy in Xinjiang. That ought not to convince Miss Bachelet. Her research team has ample evidence of mass atrocities in Xinjiang. But her office says it will only release it after the trip and consultation with Chinese authorities. For critics, the UN's prioritisation of access over accountability has already failed Xinjiang's victims. Football's best women fight for glory. 
The Women's Champions League final, which takes place in Turin on Saturday, will showcase the returns on investment women's football can offer. One side, Olympique Lyonnais Féminin, has enjoyed sustained success since it was formed in 2004. Jean-Michel Oulas, Lyon's president, ensured the women's side enjoyed equal status to the men's squad. Lyon's performance, quality facilities and high wages attracted talent from all over the world. Their rivals in Italy are FC Barcelona Femini. Barca's success is more recent, but seems likely to endure. The team's fluid, passing-based style is beginning to resemble that of the more famous men's side. In 2021, for the first time, Barca's young female players were allowed to live and train in La Masia, the club's legendary academy. Meanwhile, a few days ago, the American men's and women's football teams agreed to share World Cup prize money equally. The top end of the women's game is benefiting from much-needed steps towards equality. The Rise and Rise of Harry Styles The breakup of a boy band creates winners and losers. In 2019, Justin Timberlake, formerly of NSYNC, was wrapping up his sixth tour, performing 115 shows across America and Europe, and making $226.3 million in the process. But Joey Fatone, his erstwhile bandmate, had just finished a stint on The Masked Singer, a reality TV contest, he came fourth. When One Direction, the most successful boy band of the 2010s, broke up in 2016, Harry Styles emerged triumphant. The singer has since released two hit albums and several chart-topping singles. His third album, Harry's House, was released on Friday. Mr Styles has headlined festivals, starred in blockbuster films and co-hosted the Met Gala. A dress he wore on the cover of Vogue magazine was included in a recent exhibition about masculinity at the V&A Museum in London. Mr. Styles is a pervasive and beloved figure in popular culture. It must drive his ex-bandmates mad. Weekend Profile Carlos Alcaraz The Future of Men's Tennis Few things excite sports enthusiasts as much as the emergence of a precocious talent. That is especially true if they have been denied that pleasure for years, as men's tennis fans have. For almost 20 years, the sport has been dominated by the big three of Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Between them, the trio have won an astonishing 61 of the last 76 Grand Slam tournaments. Yet their stranglehold may finally be loosening, thanks to a 19-year-old Spanish phenomenon, Carlos Alcaraz. Mr Alcaraz, who turned professional at 15, has long been considered a hot prospect. Born in El Palma, in the southeast of Spain, he has been blessed by both pedigree and training. His father, a top player himself, inspired Mr Alcaraz to start playing at just three. Since turning professional, he has been coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero, another Spaniard and a former world number one. This year, Mr Alcaraz has come of age, winning 28 of his 31 matches. Some other players already consider him the best in the world. The bookies rate him second favourite, behind Mr Djokovic, 
to win the French Open, the year's second slam, which starts on the clay courts of Roland Garros in Paris on May 22nd. Along with his remarkable results, Mr Alcaraz's technical prowess and athleticism have left tennis fans swooning. He seems to have imbibed some of the strengths of the big three. His vicious serve is reminiscent of Mr Federer's. His topspin forehand attack differs from Mr Nadal's only in being hit with the right hand. And his ability to make aggressive shots from defensive positions, even apparently impossible ones, matches Mr Djokovic's. Beyond his tennis prowess, Mr Alcaraz stands for his mental fortitude, considered by many the most important ingredient for tennis glory. He's shown little psychological frailty in his young career, and has already staged some epic comebacks. Earlier this month, on his way to victory over Mr Nadal, his idol, in the Madrid Open, Mr Alcaraz collapsed during the second set. Yet he shrugged off his mental and physical fatigue, and went on to dominate the final set, just as Mr Nadal had done so often. The winners of this week's quiz. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Ichiro Yesuge, Tokyo, Japan, North America, Patrick Shannon, Indian Wells, USA, Central and South America, Roland Castro, San Jose, Costa Rica, Europe, Mindy Roan, London, England, Africa, Alistair Nicklin, Naivasha, Kenya, Oceana, John Wright, Auckland, New Zealand. They all gave the correct answers of Eric Gill, Sly and the Family Stone, Edward Furlong, The Hand of God, and Michael Foote. The theme is Imperial Measurements. Gill, Stone, Furlong, Hand, for horses, and Foot. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Andrei Sakharov, who was born on this day in 1921. The division of mankind threatens it with destruction. That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist radio podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening. Thank you.